Genesis chapter 16. The story that is told is remarkable, and it is a mix of the predictable and the shocking. There was perhaps points in the story, if you were following along and paying attention, it's like, really? Did that really just happen? But what is shocking in the story is not the human behavior. That is actually quite predictable. Sarah is in her 70s. Sarah, if she had a mirror, perhaps a mirror in her tent, perhaps looked in her mirror and realized if she's going to bear, bear a child, it's going to require a miracle. And you'll never guess what happens next. She finds a substitute for a miracle. It's quite predictable. Then Sarah's idea of avoiding the miracle or bypassing a miracle, the necessity of a miracle, involves Hagar, a young, probably beautiful Egyptian woman that she offers to her husband's embrace. You'll never guess what happens next. <laughs> Abraham said, let me think, okay. And with a shadow of Genesis chapter 3 coming across the page, he responds and says, listen to his wife Eve, I mean Sarah. Hagar conceives and now you have two women in one whole household, one of whom is pregnant. You'll never guess what happens next. She boasts of her superiority over the other barren woman in the household. Sarah is mad, which is also very predictable. And you'll never guess what she does. She, she goes and she blames her husband for the whole thing. <laughs> and you'll never guess what happens next. Abraham's not happy either. He says, well, do whatever you want with her. She's in your power. It's all very predictable. What is shocking is God. In the midst of all the chaos of human foolishness, you actually will never guess what God does. Not ever would we guess what God does. God shows up and in a, a revelation of himself and armed with purposes that surprise the reader to this woman, powerless, abandoned in the wilderness and speaks to her, names her child, speaks to her about a promise to that child and then sends her back to Abram's tent. Aren't you glad that God is not limited to how we imagine him? How would you imagine God should show up in this story? But he's not limited to the way that we imagine him. He is what he is. And as he reveals himself here, his mercy and his greatness are unfathomable. And there is something of both in this particular text, of, of the depth of God's mercy to reach out to a powerless soul and to speak purposes that are beyond our comprehension and, and perplexity. It brings murkiness into, like it's so simple for us. The story's going just swellingly. God has promised to Abraham, I'm going to do this for you while you sleep. I'm going to bring all these blessings onto you. And then this murkiness comes into the story. And the breadth of God's purposes are, are unfathomable. 
We sang earlier, hallelujah, <laughs> hallelujah. Glory be to our great God. Our theologians use a word that's that a phrase of called God's greater glory. In other words, there's a, there's a progression. There's a, there's a depth of awe. There's a, a, a degrees of, of glory. And that is what we are looking at in God's designs and purposes in this story is God's greater glory. Here's the main point that I'd like you to take home with you today. In the midst of this human chaos, and it really is chaos, nobody's happy. God is at peace, actually. He's not anxious. He's not wringing his hands. He's not thwarted. Rather, God shows up in the most remarkable way to proclaim something of himself. Remember, these books, these chapters are not about imitation. They're about declaration. To declare a depth of mercy that is a wonder to behold and a breadth of purpose that shuts our mouth in awe. I'm going to work through a few words this evening to try to expound that main idea. Words that I believe grab the main events and ideas that are in the, the story told in Genesis 16. The first is the word substitute. The word substitute. The Proverbs say this, if you faint in the day of adversity, how small is your strength. It also says, whoever makes haste misses his way. Sarah faints in the day of adversity of waiting for the miracle, and she makes haste, and her feet miss the way. Sarah, Sarah uses Hagar as a miracle substitute, a substitute for a miracle. Anytime that humans recognize that they are in a position of powerless dependence upon a miracle, we start looking for a substitute. We don't like the necessity of a miracle. <laughs> it's not our happy place. And our default, our, our natural inclination, is to find a substitute. Hagar was that substitute. Abram and Sarai are in a gap. And that gap is a gap between promise and fulfillment. Many describes much of, of what the New Testament of the days in which we live in right now, waiting for the coming of our Lord. The gap between promise and fulfillment. And God has shown up in the previous chapter, Genesis chapter 15, has shown up and by ceremony with Abraham sleeping shows that this is a gap that can only be filled by sheer divinity. In other words, that picture of, of Abraham sleeping and God alone, himself, by himself, stepping into the gap, demonstrating that Abraham, there's, you, you're not even going to walk it down this alley. You're not even going to come in here. There's, there's nothing that you contribute, can contribute. There is no human solution for the gap that exists between promise and fulfillment. It's all divinity. It's a one-way street. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 understood this gap, another kind of gap, a gap that existed between himself and the kingdom of God. And he came to Jesus by night and he said, what can I do? 
What can I do to obtain? What can I do to get into the kingdom of God? What, what can I contribute? Just tell me, Jesus, what, and, I'll, and, and I'll do it. And Jesus made the same idea very, very clear, that, that the same dependency upon a miracle. There's nothing you can do, Nicodemus. You actually are absolutely powerless and have a complete dependency upon a miracle. And that miracle is called to be born from above. And that also, that being born from above, that that necessary place of the, the faith of the believer, an absolute dependence upon God and his mercy to give us what we cannot possibly obtain, that miracle is also one that is often replaced by substitutes. Happened to be reading in the Gospel of Mark this past week, and Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Jesus is speaking. He is the one who came to fulfill the promise. Keep the promise, fulfill the promise, step into the gap for us. He is the greater miracle, not born of a 70-year-old woman like Isaac would be soon in this text, but that Isaac would, would herald and be fulfilled in the birth of Christ, the greater miracle, being born to a virgin, who would indeed step in and does and has and is in the gap for us between us and God. And Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and he says this to them. He says, you you have a fine way of replacing the things of God with your own traditions. (laughs) He says. In other words, the miracle is standing in your presence, but you prefer your substitutes, your customs, your traditions. It seems that with us humans, that where miracles are necessary, substitutes are not the exceptions, but they are the rule. Did Sarah believe the promise? Yes, I believe she did believe in the promise. I don't believe that she came to disbelieve the promise. In fact, it's probably because of belief in the promise that she was looking for a way to to, uh, obtain it. In other words, she was uh, not insincere or, or not unbelieving the promise. But her actions did not represent the nature of the promise itself. Her worship or her her life, her actions betrayed a worship of God that that did not put God in the place that he absolutely must be, which which is the object of complete and absolute dependence by us. That is what worship is. Worship is 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 an abject confession of dependence upon God. And Sarah's culture gave her options. It was perfectly normal in her culture to take somebody from your household and to use that other means to try to have children, to inherit a promise. The promise wasn't denied, it was just replaced with a human solution. And that's often how the devil works. Doesn't necessarily deny the promise, but offers many substitutes. The second word is misery. Proverbs says, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. (laughs) It's God's fault. Somebody else's fault. The so-called easy path isn't so easy after all. 
The human solution is a solution that brings misery. And by way of this human solution, something called Hamas enters into Abram's tent. There'd be two things in his passage that are brought into Abram's tent that didn't exist before. And the first one is Hamas, a Hebrew word that means violence. It's also a word in Arabic that we're very, very familiar with in the history of the world and politics today. Hamas. It means violence. And Hamas enters into Abraham's tent. It is a word that is first used in Genesis 6 where God looks down upon the earth and he sees that the whole earth is filled with Hamas. In other words, with violence. Now Hamas is used here to describe the consequence of trying to find your way around a miracle. Try to find your way around a miracle and you'll find misery. Hamas. Unable to endure the waiting, it turns out that they had to endure a lot more. And that's what human solutions are like. We think it's the easy path. But it turns out that instead of enduring whatever God calls upon us to wait for, for the miracle, that they had to endure a lot more. And everyone is miserable. Sarai's miserable. Hagar's miserable. Abraham's miserable. Do you ever wonder how people who are Christians can be so miserable sometimes? I wonder that about myself sometimes. Oftentimes, speaking from personal experience, our miserableness often points to the evidence of a substitute lurking somewhere in us. We're frustrated. Our paths aren't working. Our, our, our ways, our, our ideas, the ways to find peace, the ways to find happiness, the ways to find the things that we think we should have in God's blessing aren't working for us. And often the things that we self-medicate on for peace and joy, they don't work. And they bring further stress. <laughs> bring further stress into our life. They, they, they strain relationships. Sometimes it involves lying. Sometimes it involves our money in, in a way that brings financial stress upon people. You think, oh, if I just have that, I'd be happy. <laughs> misery in this particular example part of the misery comes from the inability to rejoice in someone else's success in Hagar despising her mistress Sarah who's barren and Sarai hating <laughs> despising her servant because she is pregnant Let's solve one of the world's problems, okay? Let's just solve one of the world's problems right now. One of the most simple things in the world that we could do to make the world a better place to live is to rejoice over the success of others. Think of the difference it would make in a home when a husband and wife can celebrate and rejoice over the success of the other person instead of gloating or, or, or being jealous. Think of the, the different dynamic it would bring into an office place or on the ward of a floor where you work or, or whatever, wherever it might be. If you, could, if you could rejoice over the success of others instead of silly competition. See, the problems of the world aren't complicated. <laughs> They're just human and impossible. So when I run for president, you can elect me. Prime Minister, sorry. The third word is sojourner. 
The Lord watches over the sojourner. Psalm 46, 9. Watches. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Proverbs 19, 17. In the midst of this Hamas, in the midst of this violence, Hagar sets a course for home. That's where she was headed. She was headed for home. She was from Egypt. She ends up in the middle of the wilderness. She doesn't get there. Why does she head for Egypt? She's powerless. She heads for home. Home is a place where people would, would look at you and see you and know you. Where someone might say, you're, you're a Hagar, aren't you? Aren't you a Hagar? I think I, I think I knew your parents. Are you the Hagar that used to live here? Where would you go if you were powerless? I've thought about it often in my life. What if I was... What if I lost everything? What if I flushed out of my house, flushed out of my home, and I had absolutely nowhere to go? Well, if I had a full tank, I'd get about as far as Revelstoke. And then I'd be like Hagar in the wilderness, halfway to Red Deer. Why would I go to Red Deer? It'd be the one place in the world where somebody might say, hey, aren't you a Nielsen? Are you one of those boys? Or somebody might perhaps know me by name, but Hagar, Hagar doesn't get there. It's not the first place that we'll see Hagar in the wilderness. When we get to the first 21st, the 21st chapter, another remarkable event of, of her in the wilderness with, with her son. But in the wilderness here, an amazing and unexpected thing happens. Imagine Hagar, she's in the wilderness. She, she hasn't got to the place where people know her name. And what does she hear? She hears her name. Completely out of the blue, unexpectedly. Imagine in the lostness of, of, her, of her state. And she hears the voice, Hagar, where are you going? I read a long time ago, it stuck in my head that when God asked Adam in Genesis 3, Adam, where are you? It's not because God didn't know where Adam was. It's because Adam needed to know that he wasn't where he should be. God doesn't ask questions because he needs to learn something. God asks questions because we need to learn something. Hagar, where are you going? This lost, powerless, forsaken girl and God sees her. I hope that if you are a believer, I hope that it's something that you can attest to. It's something that every Christian should be able to attest to, that God shows up in the middle of lostness, in the middle of powerlessness, in the middle of forsakenness like this girl and sees and calls by name. It is a remarkable thing. Far better than known, being known by Relatives in Egypt or in Red Deer, God knows her and God sees her. It, in the opening, these opening pages of Scripture, it's a new revelation of God. And I, 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 I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture where I'm not looking for a new revelation of God, but in the development of the revelation of God in Scripture, this is new. This is something we haven't seen before. God appears and and. And it is a wonderful revelation of God, something that will be dear to so many of the saints of God through the rest of the scriptures and through all of time and continues to shape how the church proclaims the gospel today to people that God loves the sojourner. 
whether that be the physical sojourner, literally, or the spiritual sojourner, lost, powerless. How does God do so? It begins with the simple thing of seeing. Seeing. God sees her. And seeing in a way that isn't just, well, sure, God sees everything. Sees her in a way that knows her. You know, there are times when I, I lay on my bed at night and I, I, I can't comprehend the number of breathing souls there is in this world. You think of some of the large cities in the world and just the, the mass, of, like I say, of, of living, breathing souls that there are in the world. Think of some of the cities in the world that almost are in the entire population of our entire country. Can you imagine what it would be like to walk the streets of those cities and just the sheer wall of people for dozens of miles after mile after mile and to lay in your bed and think that, that God knows me by name. It is an amazing mercy. It really is. And that simple word seeing means so much now through the rest of the scripture. Joseph sees his brothers bowing on the floor, their face on the floor in Pharaoh's court, and he, and he sees them, his ten brothers. What does he do when he sees them? He doesn't exact revenge upon them. He sees them in a way that shows mercy and helps them. The daughter of Pharaoh sees the baby Moses as she lifts the reeds off of this little thing coming down the Nile River as she's bathing in the Nile. And she sees a helpless, powerless baby. What does she do? Does she drown the baby like she's supposed to know? She sees the baby, it says, and has mercy upon it. Peter, or rather, God sees the affliction of his people in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 3, God appears in the wilderness to Moses. And what does he say? He says, I have seen the affliction of my people. In other words, not just, well, I'm a God and I know everything, I see everything. I have seen in a way that these people belong to me. That's how God is seeing his people. Why does God care? Why does he see them? Because they're his people. That's why. I love the story in the book of Acts where Peter is walking into the temple and he stops and he looks at somebody who had become invisible to everybody else. A beggar, a lame man, sitting there begging. And the scripture says that Peter looks and he fixes his gaze on the man. And the man looks at him and he knows he's been seen. Jesus, of course, so remarkable, would often stop simply to, not simply, but he would stop to see people who had become invisible to everybody else. The disciples would go, oh, what? I don't see anybody. Like, oh, you mean the leper? Oh, you mean old, this old blind guy? He's been there for years. He sees Zacchaeus in the trees. Zacchaeus, I see you. And Zacchaeus comes running down. Do you see people? Tim Keller wrote that the God of the Bible stands out from the gods of all of the other religions as a God who is on the side of the powerless. Isn't that remarkable? How would you imagine God to show up in this story? Is there someone that you need to see? Someone that I need to see? Someone that's become invisible to you that, that you're not seeing the way you should see them? That person might live in your home. They might sleep in your bed. 
Are there things that we as a church, people that as our church need to see? The powerless. God bless many of you for the ways that you do see the powerless in our community and you, you reach out in God's name. I think of the wonderful activities like fostering children, adopting children, the powerless, working with pregnancy crisis. The unborn are truly powerless. Homeless people. One of our parishioners spoke with me at length this week about plans. She goes through the streets here trying to do what she can to help. If you'd like to help her with a project at Christmas, let me know. I'll connect you with her. Refugees. Imagine having to leave your country. To just simply flee your country with nothing. And be, go to places where nobody has a clue who you are. In fact, they might even not like you. And be absolutely dependent upon someone else to help you. Other less dramatic ways that, that people help the powerless. Nurses. God bless nurses that walk into a room and see people, not just someone to work on, but see the person. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful mercy. The next word is naming. There's, there's a lot of naming that goes on in this chapter. Verse 11 says, you shall call his name Ishmael. Verse 13 says, you are the God of seeing. The naming of Ishmael is quite unsettling, actually. Listen to this. Sounds, tell me if this sounds familiar to you. Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name. If I said Emmanuel, you'd go, yeah, isn't that wonderful? Here we are in the Gospels. But it's not Emmanuel. God shows up in the wilderness and names this child, but his name is Ishmael. Naming is a big deal in the Bible. Abram and Sarai will both be renamed. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. But God shows up in the middle of this human chaos, which has not only created a powerless sojourner, it's created a pregnant sojourner. And God showing up to name this child is a demonstration of God's unfathomable purposes in this world that we can't comprehend. It's a point in the story that we don't understand, that God is demonstrating his ownership over the whole situation. It's almost like God shows up and this is all according to plan. Well, actually, it is. The chaos is, doesn't fluster God. It doesn't throw God off of his game. He, he names this child Ishmael, the God who hears, and then promises that Ishmael will be a multitude of people. Three times in the course of Genesis, this promise will be reiterated. We'll find it two more times as we read through the story of Abraham. It's fascinating. The other naming that goes on is the naming of Hagar, the name that Hagar gives to God. She names God. She isn't taking ownership of God like God is taking ownership of, of the baby. She's experiencing God. That's what she's doing. She's experiencing God. It's a, it's a truly a, a blessed thing. She, she didn't know God. She had no names for God. But God becomes real to her in the wilderness. And she experiences something that is real about God. And she gives God a name. You're the God of seeing. That isn't something she read in a book. 
<laughs> oh yeah, I know God is the God of seeing because I read it in a commentary. I've read a book on the names of God and I, and I know that that's a name for God. No, she knew that this was a name for God because she experienced it from God. A remarkably different thing. Do you experience God? How many names should we be able to give to God through Christ? Not because we've read it in a book, not because it's some idea of a thing we think, well, that's the right way to think about God, but because we've experienced God. God is not an idea. God is real, and it's such a profound thing. The name of the Lord is to be praised, Psalm 113 says. Psalm 31, verse 7 says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. The final word is opposition. The text says this, that he will be a wild donkey of a man. It's probably somebody that you might have an idea of that shows up at Christmas in your extended family. (laughs) Maybe every family has one. Now this one does. The reason that God tells Hagar to go back is not because he wants her to suffer more, but because he has great purposes for this child. And it's summed up in the word opposition. God has purposes in the opposition. He has purposes for Ishmael. And see, now there's, now there's going to be two lines. You see, when Sarah took Hagar to Abraham, it worked. Abraham has a child. <laughs> but it's not the seed of the promise, as Paul would describe it in Galatians chapter 3. But there is a child, there is an offspring of Abraham, and now through, through the rest of the entire history of redemption, through the history of Israel, through the history of the world through today, there are two lines. And what characterizes the two lines is opposition. And here we read that it's all according to God's plan. And here we have to stop and say that God's purposes are greater than we can comprehend. What is God doing? Ever ask God that, Lord? What, what are you doing? He could have closed Hagar's womb. Yes, he could have closed Hagar's womb, but that would be such a human solution, wouldn't it? Lord, just make it go away. Just don't let it happen. Yes, he could have crushed the snake's head in the garden, but imagine all of the glory that, God, that we would not have witnessed when we witness the glory, the greater glory of God, when God's seed crushes the head of Satan on the cross. That was opposition. That was God getting glory for himself. God's purposes are much greater than we can comprehend. And his glory is to be on display. It's more than God simply saying, I will bless you. Like you see, we have, we have such simplistic ways of saying how God gets glory. Well, God, you, you take your blessing and you put it on your people. That's true. But in the midst of that, this is true too. Ishmael. Ishmael. God brings a wild donkey into the tent of Abram. This is the second thing that comes into Abram's tent. Hamas was the first one. The wild donkey is the second thing. And now they're both there. A wild donkey was a metaphor of somebody that wrecks things, somebody that destroys things, something that you don't want to bring in out of the wilderness. You bring it into your stable, it's going to smash everything. It's going to break everything. That's what a wild donkey is. And listen to this. Listen to the opposition in this text. His hand 
will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. Wow. World history right there. Current politics right there. And he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. From now on, the descendants of the promise, who's not yet born, but the descendants of the promise from now on, as Abraham receives this child back into his tent, himself names him Ishmael, brings this wild donkey of a man into his tent. From now on, his children, the seed of the promise, would lay hold of the promise through the experience of perpetual opposition. Ishmaelites. They were the people that Jacob's, Joseph's brother sold him off into slavery and they carried him to, to Egypt. It was the kind of opposition that would make the psalmist cry out against the nations of the world. Psalm 83, the, uh, David, as a king over Israel, identifies the Ishmaelites and crying out to the Lord saying, God, where are you? You see the dependency upon God that it created. It creates. Opposition creates a greater decree of dependency. That's why Psalm 54 also has David crying out to the Lord saying, you alone are my helper. You alone. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says this, that adversity and prosperity, the Lord creates them both. And from a New Testament perspective, we must understand that These enemies, this opposition, are people that we must prayerfully win. Not try to kill and destroy, (laughs) but to win. Yes, many of them are sworn enemies of the church. There are Christians today who worship in parts of the world who do have to live in physical fear of violence, of Hamas against them. But the way that they're being won in the world is not through the retribution of Hamas, but through a proclamation of the gospel to prayerfully win them. God bless those that serve around the world in places of violence in order to win them for the gospel. Would you please pray with me? Our great and mighty God, help us when we are not able to comprehend and understand all of your purposes, to submit to them, to embrace them, to love them, and to worship you in the midst of things that perplex us. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that it endures. When we face opposition, Lord, I pray that you would grant us perseverance in all things. When we face temptations in our culture that that normalizes ways that really are just substitutes for your greater miracles, I pray that you would give us wisdom. Fill us with faith, I pray. For Jesus' sake, I pray it.